going to ask you if you could to go to your uh, Bible in the book of John, John chapter 1. I'm going to clarify for you a little bit where we're headed in the next couple of weeks. And in John chapter 1, we see a, a remarkable statement, a theological statement about who Jesus is. And we're going to examine that over the next few weeks because we're leading up to a series, a series on the parables. And we're going to spend a lot of time this fall, and, and it'll probably bleed over into the winter. And um, New Hope tradition, it could turn into three years for all I know. But it, it's a series on the parables, and there's 27 of them, and each one is a story. And each story comes to life, and it's Jesus telling the story. And I'm really excited to do it with you. I'm looking forward to it. Rich Bruce has been working on a study guide to go along with it since, I think, April or so. And so I think you're going to find it really enriching. But in order to really understand these parables and the authority of the one telling them, I thought it was incredibly important that we do a little study on Christology. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's studying Jesus. So John 1.1 1, 1 makes the most definitive statement of, about Jesus. I think, I think it's the most theologically profound statement I've ever seen any place, and I'm pretty sure I know what it roots from. If you understand biblical chronology, you understand that the book of John was actually written after the book of Revelation. John wrote the book of Revelation as a result of his time on the island of Patmos. And God showed him future things. What was going to become of this planet? What's going to happen on earth? Well, that's the book of Revelation. But in the midst of the book of Revelation, John is told something about this one, this Jesus the man that he knew on the planet. Look with me on the screen at Revelation 19.13. It says, and the name by which he is called, is the Word of God. Uh, John knew him as Yeshua. John knew him as Jesus. John knew him as the risen Savior. But in Revelation, he discovers that from heaven, he's known as the Word, the Word of God. So it's not by accident that John brings that over into John 1.1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, just hear me on this. This is the way John 1.1 goes, and you're not going to see it on the screen just yet. Just hear it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. See, it's not by accident he uses the Word there because in heaven... They call Jesus the Word. My experience is that the name Jesus triggers all kinds of emotions with people. It causes people to use His name in ways that we wouldn't do of anyone else. You hear it when you get your oil changed or maybe when you're in line at a grocery store. It's like, Jesus Christ, can't you do anything right? That's one way you hear it. Or you hear it as an exclamation point. Somebody says, geez. Well, that's a derivative. That's an abbreviation for the name Jesus. Or as a point of shock, like, Jesus, can you believe it? We don't do that with any other name on planet Earth. Have you ever noticed that? Nobody goes like, oh, Buddha, right? <laughs> or, oh, Mary Poppins. We don't. Why that particular name? In Greek, it's Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. 
And the name Yeshua was not all that uncommon. Uh, among people in the first century, it'd be like naming your child Jerry or John or Tom. Yeshua, you, you could just as easily interchange John. It was a common name, very similar to what we would think of today. But virtually all modern scholars agree this one, Jesus, Yeshua, this one existed historically. You'd have to have grown up under a rock to not know historically there was a real person by the name of Jesus. Lived in Israel, executed by Rome by the manner of crucifixion. But that's an incomplete story. What changed everything is the resurrection. You have to do something with it. You have to do something with that information. What do I do when people start saying there's been a resurrection? See, no one saw that coming. As common as the name was, no one knew that that was going to happen. And as news of a resurrection spread across the planet, people began to process, what am I going to do with this? And the magnitude of the events that went with it caused people to step back and say, who is this one? Follow the flow. God's in heaven. God leaves heaven. God becomes man. Man kills God. God is resurrected. God returns to heaven. And all the calendars on the entire globe stop. It's what Scripture calls the consummation of the ages. Everything on planet Earth revolves around one person, one individual, who was here by the name Yeshua, and we rebooted the planet based on that person. That's why the Bible calls it the consummation of the ages. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews 9.26. Now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin. So how do we understand this one who redefined everything? Well, some of us will look to culture. Some of us will look at movies. We'll talk with friends on campus. We'll get into coffee shop conversations. Some of us will look to our grandparents or maybe an aunt. We'll wonder what their opinion is. Who was this one? Islam regards him as a prophet, a bringer of truth. Judaism completely rejects him as a Messiah, and they continue to wait for a Messiah. So this week, what we're going to do is we're going to travel back as far as we can in time to the time before time to discover this one who has the name which is above every name. You can follow along on the screen or maybe have your own Bible open or if you need a Bible, we have free Bibles. Pick one up after the service. They're out on the information desk. I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. But follow the flow of this. It says this in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You might be new to it, or maybe you've read it many times and you're confused by that. Let me help you with that confusion. John is summarizing in a step-by-step -step process how Jesus stepped into the sphere of time, how He became flesh. In other words, drink this in how God the Son became Jesus the man. And I know that's new information for some of you. So just process it for a moment. God the Son became Jesus the man. And you may need to ease into that. Jesus is not a created being. Let's break this down so you see it. 
There's a parallel between Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1, and you see it right away in the first three words. In the beginning. And John did not write it that way by accident. If you have your notes open this morning, you've already looked and you see several Greek words. One of the Greek words in the very beginning is the word arche. You see it on the screen as well. So this word beginning in English language that we're using here, it's this word arche. And notice the flow of it. The commencement or the origin. So we've got that truth, but it's dual. Look at the other half of it. The source or the chief one in authority. And both are true of Jesus. He is the originator and the chief one in authority. So in this case, the word arche is referring to the beginning of the universe. At the beginning of all things, just like with Genesis 1.1. That's why it's not an accident that John wrote that. So Jesus is not the first thing created, but the origin of all the created things. Let me demonstrate for you what we're speaking about here. We're talking about the names of Jesus. He's known by names, the name. Look at this one, Revelation 3.14. He's called the Amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning, the arche, the source, the originator of the creation. So here's what it means for you this morning. It means that Jesus already existed before the heavens and the earth, not a created being. If we accept the reality that time began with the start of the universe, think this through. If we accept the reality that time start with the beginning of the universe, whatever is before that is eternal. So we're saying Jesus is eternal. In other words, there was a point when the universe did not exist. There has never been a point when the Godhead did not exist. That's why God says, I am that I am. When Moses saw him on Sinai and said, what should I tell people? who you are. He said, tell them I am has sent you. Moses said, I, I don't know what to do with that. I am that I am. I've always been from everlasting to everlasting. That's why the author of Psalms wrote this. Psalms 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So we've got the first three words down. In the beginning, we'll, we'll link that. Stay with me on this. In the beginning, here's the next part, was the Word. Now we understand that God creates by His Word. And God said, is what the Bible records. Not and God did. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the mountains stand fast. And God said. So you find Jesus in the New Testament commanding the storm only by his voice. And so the disciples likely respond, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Just his speaking. So Jesus speaks, the storm stops. We find that consistent with the book of Psalms, Psalm 33, 9. He commanded and it stood fast. Now, I'm going to ask in the tech room for them to back up one slide. Jody, can you put that back? Thank you. Was the word. Now, pay very close attention. I know it's going to feel like eighth grade English class, but bear with me for a minute. The word was is a verb. Verbs, we know, are action words. 
In this case, in the Greek language, the word was is the word en, E-N, and it's a continuing action verb. So stay with me. Meaning, it's doing something. It's an action verb. It was. What John is writing here is that this verse, this statement, this was the word is extremely important. He's not saying the word came into existence. It just is. And to clarify it, he uses the verb was, and it's extremely important. You notice it's used four times in one sentence alone here in John 1. What we are dealing with, New Hope, what we're looking at here is just as in Genesis 1-1, where there's no hint whatsoever that God is a created being, in the beginning God, there is here no interval when the Word was not in existence. Somebody in the first service, we did Q&A after the first service, and they said it would really help me if I could just interchange the name Jesus for the word, word. You could do that. In, in the beginning, Jesus, if you wanted to. In the beginning, word. But that would minimize what John's really driving towards here. The word always existed. There's never been a point of beginning. Now, if this hasn't yet felt like we're into the weeds, just bear with me. It's going to get weedier here, okay? We've got the verb was down. Now take the word word. In the Greek world, in the ancient world of the Greek people, among the philosophers, the word word is the word logos. And for them, logos is the source of wisdom or a force, if you will. In modern day America, we have the, the mythology of Star Wars. I know that offends some of you that I called it mythology, but it is, okay. So, Star Wars is this thing of a force, right? May the force be with you. That's borrowed over from the ancient Greek world. The thought of logos being a force, it's doing something, it's the source of all wisdom. And logos is not unique to the Greek people. They borrowed it from the ancient Hebrew people. By that I mean the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, in which the ancient Israelites understood that this concept of logos is the, the word is the foundation of all thinking. In other words, this, every time God acted on the planet, every time God did something or does something, that's his word. So logos or word is paramount to the ancients, and here's what it did for them. Knowing that it's the source of all wisdom, it drove them to memorize and study, <laughs> dig into and tear apart and make it part of their lives and try and understand it. And they committed their lives to understanding the Word because of this reason. They understood that the Word is the agent through which God accomplishes His activity, that He wouldn't act outside of His Word it's best understood this way when we look at Genesis 1-3. Look with me on the screen. And God said, let there be. See, the Word does things. It's action-oriented. There's activity there. That makes sense why the writer of Hebrews, when he said the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, they got it. He said, well, of course. Exactly, that's exactly what the Word does. So the Word does things. It's alive and it's active. So by His Word, here's why it's important to you. 
by his word, he establishes covenants. Here's a couple Old Testament examples. Look with me on the screen. Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I'm a shield to you. God's about to enter into a covenant. The word is going to do something. It's going to make a commitment. Or what about the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not. That's God's word. It's action-oriented. Or 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 22. The word of the Lord is tested. Why does this matter to you on August 25th in 2019? Why is this so significant? Because by His word, He promises to forgive sin. Whatever you did last night, this last week, this last year, you have no confidence that God's not going to hold that sin against you unless He says, I remember your sin no more. I separate it from you as far as the east is from the west. If you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. See, that's God's word. Now, we need to understand one other thing about why this is so significant. It's not just the forgiveness of sin. We're talking about eternity here. Because by His Word, He promised that He would not only forgive your sin, but that you have an eternal destination waiting for you. Can I remind you this morning that you're an eternal being? Yep, this life is going on right now. You may not feel like you're an eternal being, but you are an eternal being. There's an eternal future waiting for you. Where is that going to be? Where is your future life going to be in eternity? So, Let's really step off the ledge into some very deep things here. When we talk about eternity, we need to link together what John's saying when he says, in the beginning was the Word. We got six words down. Now here's the last five. And the Word was with God. So now we've arrived at this place of understanding that in the beginning was the Word, and then John reaches out, and he marries together, and the Word was with God. And we're talking about face-to-face relationship here. How do I understand that? See, it's very simply stated in the English language. The Word was with God. Four simple words in the English So the Greek really helps us a lot. And maybe some of you already have this written down in your Bible. We did this um, example of proston theon like seven years ago. But look with me at this very closely. Proston theon is the way the Greek language lists this. Word was with God. Here's the picture that goes with it. Think of two individuals in face-to-face communication. Think of a coffee shop. Two people sitting at a table across from each other in intimate, deep, meaningful conversation. And you've got the concept of proston theon. Let's take it further. From that launches the basis of all of our understanding of the Trinity. From all eternity, we're being told here in John 1.1 that God the Son is with God the Father in deep, intimate fellowship. So I ask you this question right now. Who is the closest friend you have in your life? Just let that 
thought pop in your mind, who's your best friend? And then magnify that times trillions. And you begin to scratch the surface of proston theon, God the Father with God the Son, proston theon, and you begin to sense the intimacy of what we're talking about here. And you really get it when you go to the night that Jesus was betrayed and he's in the garden. He says, Father, restore me to the glory that I had with you before the world was. Bring back the purity of that relationship. See, God the Father and God the Son agreed that God the Son would become a man and God the man is gonna be executed and he's in the garden and he's about to be betrayed. Throw that back up on the screen, would you, Jody? Look at this one real closely, John 17, five. Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, I've done everything that we agreed to. Bring me back. Restore the relationship. And then we come into this astounding truth that he closes it out with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Verse 1, and the Word was God. So this Word it's not just some Greek thought of a force, and it's not just this Hebrew understanding of action. The Word is actually not removed from God, but actually the Word is God. And this becomes absolutely crushing to me. I, I hope it does to you, too. I'm, I'm talking about Mark Kring crushed by this in humility, realizing that God the Father and God the Son in profound humility, agreed that Jesus would leave that face-to-face -face relationship and the intimacy with the Father and come for me. And he would come for you. That's why John says in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. He's restating this overpowering truth that he just said in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And now he's saying it again in verse 2. And he was in the beginning with God. That makes sense now. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I get it. I get that. Let me very lightly touch with you on verse 3 because it helps us to end this. Look what John wrote in verse 3. We'll come back to it in two weeks. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Literally, he's saying the word, the word is the agent of creation. This present world that you live in is radically different from the original creation. You know sickness, you know disease. There's a reason my throat's clogging up right now. <clears throat> Phil, can you throw me that water? We're fallen creatures, right? This is telling me I've been talking too much. Okay. This is especially poignant to me. 
This week I received a note from someone whose family member is dying. And in the case of this individual, um, they've never attended New Hope in the services, but they've been watching videos online and watching the services. And that individual who's um, got months perhaps to live came to the reality that because of the sickness that they're facing, that this can't be normal. Something's broken. And watched last week's service and realized that they're going through a furnace. And as a result of that, professed Jesus Christ as their Savior yesterday morning. The reality that we live on a broken planet that's fallen, there's a reason dogs bite, there's a reason for disease and sickness. It's because this place is messed up. And so Jesus has to come back and fix things. He's the agent of creation. Our present world is radically different from the original creation. The catastrophic results of the fall not only affected all of humanity, but it affected all of the created order. So that's why Jesus said, Behold, I will make all things new. Jesus will one day remake everything, not only believers. You'll get a new body, a new dwelling place, but the material world also. So we find Romans 8.20 saying, right now, the situation we're in is messed up. That's my interpretation of Romans 8.20. Look with me on the screen. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Okay, that all brings us to this closing. There's four things you've learned about Jesus this morning that will help you as we study the parables. And you need to keep this in the forefront of your mind as we come into these writings about who Jesus is. First of all, here's the first one. The time of his existence. Before all time, he was there in the beginning. Here's the second one, essence of his identity. The word was God. And it can't get any simpler than that, and it can't get any weightier than that. And let this be very clear here at New Hope, especially if you're new here. When we worship Jesus, we worship God. Say amen if you agree with that. So if we worship Jesus and we praise the name that is above every name, we're worshiping God. So we bow before Jesus in the same way that Thomas did. Even though he really messed up, he said, I, I need to see the holes. I need to see the nail prints. Jesus stands before him and said, here they are, Thomas. Go ahead and touch me. To which Thomas fell on his knees, my Lord and my God. The disciples got it. It took them a while, but they eventually got it. So we approach this humbly and awestruck because we've got this relationship to God. The Word was God, and now we've got this relationship to the world. All things were made by Him, through Him, for Him. So I, I approach this humbly. I approach this awestruck. I hope you do too as well. We approach this worshipfully that the man at the wedding and the man at the well and the one who's walking the seashore and if you will, the fourth man in the furnace, a la last week, is the creator of the universe. This one is your maker and your redeemer. 
The one who is the name, which is above every name, became flesh, and he taught us, and he loved us, and he healed us, and he died for us. If you will believe. So just picture this. About to go out the door. I want you to carry something out the door with you. God the Son, in intimate, face-to-face relationship with God the Father, willingly left that for me, for you. He left it for you because God is so interested in you. He didn't just send information. He sent himself so that you wouldn't be confused. God the Son becomes Jesus the man. If Jesus is not God, he cannot accomplish salvation, but he is, therefore, he can and if this is confusing to you, you're not alone. One of my favorite old dead theologians is Charles Simeon. You haven't heard his name in a long time, but I want you to see what he said in 1827. I wonder not at the unbelief of those who call in question the divinity of Christ, for if it were not so fully revealed, as that it is impossible for a truly enlightened man to doubt it, I should be ready to doubt it myself, so inconceivable does it appear that God should become a man and make himself the surety and substitute of his own rebellious creatures. But he is God, therefore I can believe all that he's done, and in doing what he has done, he has acted exactly like himself. Though the living God, he died for you. Though having died, he was resurrected again, that I might be And if you want the dirty, honest truth, nothing less than that is sufficient to wash away my sin because I have guilt, and so do you. We live on a fallen planet. We all have sin. We all are fallen short of the glory of God, and nothing less than the blood of God can wash it away. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. At New Hope, we teach this. We teach what you believe about God determines what you do next. What are you going to do next? Do you believe? What will you do with that belief? Some of you came in the room as believers. Some of you may leave the room having not believed previously, but now believing. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has worked in your life. If you'd like for me to pray with you after the service, I'd be happy to do that. I'd be thrilled. I'd be honored to do that. If you want to know more and you want to understand this, here's what I believe about what we've talked about this morning. I believe that God the Son willingly relinquished His throne because of immeasurable love for every one of us. And we can't comprehend it, but he did. So when Mary and Joseph called their son in for supper and said, Yeshua, tell James it's time to eat. Jesus gathered up his siblings and they came in and the name wasn't all that uncommon. But something happened. Because today we don't sing songs to John, John, John. Or Jeremy, Jeremy, Jeremy. We sing songs to the name that is above every name. 
because there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved, according to Scripture, Acts 4.12. So God highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would bury this truth deep in our heart, that we would not forget it. The next time somebody wants to go into a conversation with us about Jesus, give us a capacity that goes beyond our own memory. I would ask even for a supernatural ability to recall these truths. Father, if, if we're honest with ourselves, the chances are because we're following, we're going to forget. We might even forget by this afternoon. For us, Father, cause us to determine to walk differently as we worship this one. It's not just that Jesus died for us, but that he is God. Drive that truth home so that we sing holy, holy, holy differently. And as we step into the parable series, Father, I ask that you would indeed enlighten our minds so that we really understand these things that Jesus was talking about. I pray for our church that you would translate this into making us better at following Jesus. We want that. We pray for that in Jesus' majestic name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.